Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to... Hey! Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we have another preseason edition of The Deciding Point, where we break down our top 10 Division I men's and women's teams heading into the 2024 college tennis season. Of course, we are now less than a month away from the start of a new college tennis year, and I know I speak for everyone on this podcast, everyone at Crack Rackets, and likely all of you listeners as well when I say we are thrilled for the start of another season. Of course, how can we occupy our time in the meanwhile? Well, it's by speculating, by offering all of you college tennis fans of a preview of the teams we think will help define everything that happens throughout the course of the year. And as always, I will begin the podcast by reminding you listeners, if you have missed any of our previous episodes, all you have to do to catch up is scroll down on your podcast feed. If you want to hear more about our deliberations into coming, uh, putting, excuse me, our top 10 together this offseason, all you got to do is scroll down to our college tennis preview preview episode. The theme is we got a lot of great preview content for all of you college tennis fans to enjoy and we expect and plan to continue to provide you that sort of content through the start of the college tennis season and, of course, throughout the year as well. That said, we have reached number seven in our preseason countdown. Today, we'll be talking about the Tennessee Volunteers and joining me to break them down in another preseason edition of The Deciding Point is the man who will join me for each and every one of these Division I men's top 10 preview episodes, a man you all know best as the forefather of the College Tennis Ranks formula. Predictions never far from the listed UTR, the lean, mean Michigan Wolverine. It's our dear friend, the professor, Chris Halioris. Chris, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show, my friend. We're almost at the halfway mark, which is exciting to me because it means we're nearing the start of another year. How are you feeling, my friend? Ah, I am doing great. Uh, I cannot wait to get into this. I'm so, well. I think it's the it's the camera angle that kept you from even before we went live from even commenting on my gear tonight, Gruskin. But you know, uh, there that's a little preview just for you. But the, the other thing I have to comment, I don't think I've ever made this comment. We've I don't think we've ever done one of these great shot pods live on video, and folks. I'm just telling you, you need to see one because the Gruskin intro, when he does, when he, when he does the long, I don't know if ever, I don't know. <laughs> I know it goes blank on me and I've heard Westoff talk about it. I don't know if all of the listeners get the blank or if they get the long welcome to 
but Gruskin literally <laughs> shuts his eyes. He's completely <laughs> blind at this point. I'm making all kinds of faces at him. He has no idea because he's closed his eyes to, to stretch out the two as long as he possibly can. It's a thing of beauty. People need to see it. Well, first of all, you didn't describe what you were wearing. I think most people can infer that it's Tennessee gear based on the title of this podcast, but I will confirm for all of the listeners because this is an audio medium, at least in the preseason, that yes, Chris is decked out in volunteer gear. I almost did the same, but, and by the way, I meant to add this to your intro, a man who will never be free from being our reporter for the SEC. It's Chris Halioris joining us tonight. We'll ask him to put his SEC hat back on, but... But I would remind you, Chris, two things. One, I record a separate audio file on GarageBand for the listeners. So, yes, they always hear me hold the note in the audio form. (laughs) You know the deciding point during the regular season is on YouTube. So you can actually see this throughout the course of the year. Great natural plug by you. I think Chris and I will probably be Wednesday nights throughout the course of the regular season. We'll be breaking down each and every week the biggest results, the things you need to know throughout the course of the year. I do close my eyes when I hold the note. That's so true. I'm glad you noticed it. It's a great observation by you. It's why I always love having you on the show. Um, yeah, that's that's very funny. Um, uh, the th- it's funny you mentioned on the Zoom the faces you make. David Kane does a full mockery of my Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. And he'll go all the way through the day's date. And what I have to do is hide the Zoom while I'm doing that part of the intro because you know me. Otherwise, I'll just laugh. And again, a little look behind the curtain. It's not always the first take for these podcasts <laughs> when we're doing intros. Chris knows in the early years in particular, sometimes they used to call me three-take Gruskin for a reason. Chris Halioris, we've cleaned things up since then, but astute observation by you. And I want to offer you one more chance for observations. That was a pretty good opening monologue, so we'll do this quicker than anticipated. But I told Chris that this had happened today. And for listeners that are curious, we're recording this on Tuesday, December 19th. You're hearing this Thursday, December 21st for the first time, we had our Crack Rackets company celebration today of all we accomplished in 2023, a moment for Dalton, Westoff, and I to get together, enjoy one another's company, again, reflect on the past year of all things Cracked Rackets, and it was a joyful occasion. It consisted of two events. First, we went to Ikea, where the three of us picked out new furniture for the soon-to-be renovated Crack Rackets podcast studio, which we will show you each and every week on The Deciding Point. And to all of you college tennis fans or coaches listening in, just so you know, there will be a dedicated shelf to all of the gear you guys have sent me over the years. I'm going to do a rotating thing. of Well, I have two plans here, Chris, off of this gear. This is good that we're doing this early. I want your opinion. I have a lot of hats. I'm hoping that through this process, maybe even more might be sent our way so we can feature so many great teams from throughout the country. I do think I'm going to have a portion of the shelf where I have a UNC hat and I have a Virginia hat. And that's the reigning champ shelf. And they get like their own section of the shelf. And then every year we'll change out that section to whoever the reigning NCAA champions is. I know that's a stupid thing, but do you approve of that design in the new podcast studio? Oh, I definitely approve of that design, Grusk. And I, I once thought, as when I when I was really uh, following, you know, making it to all the schools in the SEC, I was trying to collect the tennis balls 
that are stamped with everyone's oh. logo on it, right? And one of the things that I had wanted to do at the time was build a display that would hold, you know, one ball for each school and hold the current SEC standings in order on a, on a display, uh, you know, and and have that behind me all the time. That, but uh, yeah, I, a very similar idea. I love it. I also wanted to do that. Michael Woodson in his office has every Power Five school's tennis ball logo uh, on a tennis ball that he has on a shelf, very beautifully organized as his backdrop to his office. And I offered him a sum for that as the backdrop. The sum was not high enough for him to accept. I don't think I could offer it that large. But to me, that would be the goal and something I might start trying to build out. But yeah, we go to Ikea and then we celebrate in classic Daniel Westoff fashion. It might be the single thing that brings him the most joy. And that is when we go do Korean barbecue and hot pot as our meal du jour, where for those that don't know, and I've only done it like two or three times, you cook it in front of you. They bring you the raw meats. You have the grill as one option. You have the broths that you can put the uncooked stuff in as well. And it all cooks in there. If you hear me hesitate or swallowing or breathing deeply. I really try my best not to eat now before these podcasts. And it was like five hours ago. So I've recovered subsequently, but that would be the reason why. Chris Haliorce, I know you have some questions for me before we talk Tennessee. And I promise Vols fans, we're getting there in a second. Yeah. Oh, this is great. Cause my first thought is, Hey, I've never done Korean barbecue, but what you're describing to me sounds like the melting pot. <laughs> well, here's which, what, yeah. Which a Trevor Fauché victory over Martin Joyce at Winter Nats one year cost me a meal for Trevor and Stephen Goldman at the melting pot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's one of I love going to the melting pot for the very same reason, or I did before I was vegan. I'll say now it's yeah. pretty tough to go. No, you could still go hot potted up. There's plenty of veggies and things you yeah. can throw in there. And I've definitely gotten much better at it through my three experiences. The hot pot's not the fun part, although Dalton, I want you to know, we were on a call with someone in the tennis world recently. And this is just things you get from Dalton at dinner all the time. It's one of the best one-liners I've heard recently, just to make fun of. And I have been. He goes, someone was talking about just something. We were partnership and whatever. And Dalton goes, well, you know, at Cracked Rackets, we love the C word. And you're just like, I'm sorry. I No. And you're just like, I'm sorry. What? And he goes, he finished the sentence pretty quickly. But I just want you to know when he said, we love the C word. If you could have seen my face like, oh, my God, where is oh, he going with this? And yeah, goes, my jaw just dropped when you no, said it's, it's a, It gets even better, though. It, he goes, we love the C word. We love to compete. And I was like, dude, that's not the C word. Um, and then I just like, I want you to know that my face literally looks like if you asked me to do the Cersei Lannister walk of shame versus stand in this conference call any longer, I would prefer the Cersei Lannister walk of shame. Like, I would love is, to see Hannah's face in reaction to that. No, let the record show. It got a laugh from everyone. Because you're just like, what is this guy doing? Um, and so it was hilarious. All right. So, so my last question for yeah. you, because I can only envision this now. You go to Ikea. Yeah, this is where it gets good because it was I, as imagined. You're you're clearly buying furniture. Yeah. I'm very aware of the inept skills of Mr. Thieneman in this department. <laughs> Who's putting this crap together? Oh. <laughs> has to, it has to be Westoff. Well, I had a really good one-liner because there was this really comfortable looking chair 
and it was very expensive. And I look at Dalton, and I go, dude, if I call a U.S. Open match last year, you're buying me that chair. And he starts laughing and goes, sure. And I go, and I'm not the one putting it together. It's West oh. off for sure. No. So <laughs> took West off about 20 seconds to realize, all right, ignore the doofuses because I got to focus here. Like <laughs> Dalton and I, it turned into a competition to where if you provided a relevant idea to West off to where he'd go, Oh, that's pretty good. Then like we put a point on the board and it got to a point where I was up like three Oh on Dalton and it got real competitive <laughs> and it was really fun. And yeah, it's like a maze and West off goes, Oh, there's a shortcut we can go through to like cut ahead of sections. I was like, there's a shortcut. I was like, where are we? Um, and then we get to the search machine for checkout and you could like look up the items. What's the first item I looked up? Chocolate, of course. I was like, he goes, dude, move. And I was like, I can't help. I just want to know what the options are. Um, it was just as advertised. Literally, he's like, all right, you two stay here. I'm going to go do whatever. And it turns out, by the way, that starting tomorrow, all items are on sale up to 70% off. So we're going to have to go back tomorrow, <laughs> um, which is the best part of it all. Yeah, there's no but, no problem with that. It's like going to Lowe's or Home Depot. I'm always yeah, down for that trip. <laughs> exactly. But we have the furniture in mind. Anyways, that's how we celebrate the end of the year at Crack Rackets. It was exactly as advertised. A lot of laughs, a lot of fun. Shout out Dalton. Shout out Westoff. It's a shout out you, Chris Halliors. I'm surprised because we sent you an invitation, but you didn't make the drive up. Hopefully yeah. you'll be yeah, hopefully you can be there next year. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's probably enough for Tennessee fans who are like, all right, you gave us 13 minutes on that. Really? <laughs> well, guess what, folks? It's the holiday season. Be festive, be spirited. Chris and I like to have some fun. This is how we're I giving. Yeah, this is how I get him warmed up. Listeners should also know we're recording this at 10.49 p.m. Eastern time. So I need Chris a little loopy because that's when he's – if you've ever listened to a post-round of 16 National Indoors podcast oh, – like I think one thirty in the morning. Yeah, I think tonight could get into that category because I think this is going to be a fun one. Again, we've reached number seven in our preseason rankings, and I think this is a fascinating team in Tennessee – who we are going to discuss here now moving forward. And a quick reminder, we want to recap 2023, kind of discuss where this program has sat over the course of recent history. And then we want to break down the roster. We want to talk about the summer, the fall for all of these players. Who's the most valuable point in that singles lineup as you try to project things out? What sort of opportunities will this team have to test itself throughout the course of the year? Ceiling, floor, we'll get into all of that. But it is worth reminding This has been a major upswing in the best possible way. The sort of three- to four-year run this Tennessee program had been in search of for about half a decade, that's what they've done in this, dare I say, post-COVID era. And even if you want to go back to 2019, a team that beat Florida in one of my favorite SEC tournament matches and just postseason tournament matches ever, Um, they beat Florida there, losing the SEC final to Mississippi State. That team then loses in the round of 16 to Florida. And again, really spirited match. I pride myself on being a historian. I know Chris Helioris does as well. If you are a college tennis nerd like I do, you know that's when that thread really started for what I'll call Generation Walton or Generation Harper at Tennessee, that group that kind of planted the seeds in 2019 and then, dare I say, has brought this Tennessee men's tennis program back to the blue chip status that it has often 
occupied throughout the course of men's college tennis history. And, you know, again, you look at what Chris Woodruff has done in his now five seasons on the job. He's 120 and 37, Chris. It's a 764 win percentage. It's the third best in Tennessee men's tennis history. Now, one of the guys he trails coached just 17 matches. The other guy, 54 and 11 in four seasons. But keep in mind, that's better than Mike DePalmer. That's better than his predecessor, Sam Winterbotham. That's better than some of the really good coaches you have seen in Tennessee men's tennis history. And obviously, you look at what they've done in the postseason these last few years, round of 16 in 2019, back-to-back semifinals, 21-22. Obviously, last year, a little disappointing. They sneak into a top eight seed, but ultimately upset in the round of 16 by uh, South Carolina. Still, this is a team that has won 20 matches for three consecutive, uh, 20 plus matches, excuse me, for three consecutive seasons. A team that has finished top two, top three in the SEC for most of the last three years as well. This is a team that, again, has proved produced an NCAA doubles champion in the last three years as well. They've just been competing at the biggest events. They've been a relevant part of the storyline in every portion of the season. It is just worth noting that perspective as we start to look back at a 2023 season that, again, saw a lot of players in their final year on the job for Tennessee. Guys like a Pat Harper, guys like a Martin Prada, who were there at a begin- at the beginning. Obviously, new pieces as well, like Emil Hud coming in in his second season, obviously getting a little bit more comfortable on the job. A guy like Tomas Rodriguez coming in for his final season. Boris Kozlov as well. You know, this team had a lot of pieces last year. And with those pieces came a lot of experimentation throughout the course of the year. It really wasn't until the end of the year that it was settled, okay, Rodriguez is the guy we're going to go with at the number six spot. We kind of like Prada as a loose wild card playing in doubles as well, and they kind of settle on their teams there. Again, a lot of cooks in the kitchen last year in the best possible way. There were a lot of talented chefs, but... As such, there was a lot of experimentation. There were some injuries along the course of the way as well. And so, Chris, as you look back in the context of this four-year run, in the context of what Chris Woodruff has this Tennessee program back doing, 23-8 and overall last year, knocked out in the NCAA round of 16 by South Carolina, the 4-3 loss to Kentucky in the SEC tournament as well. Overperformance, underperformance, just right for the Vols in 2023. I, look, I, I have to side, and I would think that in all honesty, the 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 team and coaches there would say the same thing. It's it was a little bit of a disappointment. It's an underperform for me. Mm-hmm. We had them preseason, I think, number five. They finished nine, not too still a top ten team. Uh, but we we just expected uh a little bit more. And to your point, right? They uh an upset in the NCAA tournament, knocked out in the SEC tournament, just everything you're trying to work for just a little bit short. When you come up just a little bit short at every step, it's to me, it's a little bit of an underperformance. You can't argue, there's no doubt that you can't argue with finishing top 10. I'll take finishing top 10 no matter what, but I'll equate it, if you will, back to my very fond memories of my days with the Mississippi State team, where the junior year for that Fab Four, they finished number five. You're expecting big things that senior year, 
and they finish number nine, much like Tennessee did last year. And you've just come out of that just feeling a little disappointed, like it should have been better. And I kind of feel that's the way Tennessee is for last year is it should have been better. Couldn't agree with you more. I think you have to go under performance for the first time with this team. And why I would make the strongest case for that is I come out of last season and I still don't think we ever saw the best version of this Tennessee team. A Tennessee team that came out of the gate stumbling, right? Early losses at Michigan, at Wake Forest, you know, a loss to TCU as well. Then at the National Indoors, they lose opening match to Virginia, bounce back from there, wins over Stanford, Illinois, and what were tight matches. But, you know, again, first run loss at the National Indoors for a team that had been knocking on the door of winning that event the past two years. Then you go through conference play, Right away, they lose a 4-3 match at Auburn that just kind of knocks things off course. Then they, you know, seem to have things going. Obviously play really well down the home stretch. A 4-3 loss at Georgia, their only SEC loss after that Auburn match. But then you get to the conference tournament, 4-3 loss to Ole Miss. NCAA tournament, you're the home team in that round of 16 match. 4-2 loss to South Carolina. It feels like other than maybe end of March, start of April, we never saw this team click and test the best in the way that, again, their roster dictated they should have. And by the way, you look at the numbers last year, you know, Monday was 16 and three at the top spot. He went 28 and 10 overall in the year. That's about as good as you can ask from any player at the top spot. And certainly last year, Monday being the junior that he was, no longer Walton as the crutch to lean on. And I say that in the best possible sense of, all right. Johannes, it's your time to step up into the number one role. He did that admirably. I thought Shinsuke Mitsui, after some serious early season struggles, high in the lineup, he found his rhythm by the end of the year. And excuse me, Monday finished 19 and 4. Mitsui finished 28 and 10, 18 and 7 in dual match play, but 12 and 2 at the number four spot, which is where he settled for the year. Again, the problem was Bicknell. 12 and 14 in dual match play, just never seemed to find his rhythm. Emil Hud, 18 and 9 in dual match play. There were times when he was really good, but again, that Kentucky match, third set loss to Alafia, the South Carolina match, third set loss uh, to Thompson as well. There were just some moments where he couldn't quite get over the finish line. I like again as you look back at the schedule. What is the match where they played their best? Six one at South Carolina in April. Maybe that's what you turn to. But South Carolina got them back on the other end in the round of sixteen. So I just like I come out of that year with all the pieces they had. You know, again, HUD I, even at six between Prada, Rodriguez, and Kozlov, Harper. That no one really clicked until I suppose Rodriguez at the end of the year when he started rolling that took that long to get there. I just like I, I I still wonder if we got to see the ceiling of that team last season or if just it never quite clicked. Oh it abs it absolutely never clicked. And look, I mean <clears throat> you hear people say and you never know what it really means that you know certain things are 90% mental or or something along those lines, right? And, and that we talk about how college tennis is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. You're not throwing six guys out there individually on courts and just saying, play your matches. It's a, it's a real team thing. And look, they had their struggles from a non tennis performance perspective early in the year. There were, you know, personality off court, whatever you want to call it. There were things going on there. It took them a while to, to sort of 
get together as a team, as a group, solidify. And as you mentioned, for sure, Blaze Bicknell will be the first guy to tell you he did not have the year that he wanted to have. And that hurt them. He was an absolute unmitigated disaster indoors. There, I, there's you just there's no question about it. That's not it's not his surface. And look, you go look at UTRs right now. I haven't looked in probably a month. Last time I looked, his UTR was better than Johannes Monday's. The guy's a stud, and he had a losing record in the singles lineup. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, right? So we obviously never saw the best version of Blaze Bicknell. You look at the names on the roster and the and the caliber of the players, and you go, man should be great, but they never quite seemed to put it together as a team. It did look like, as you mentioned, when they got to that South Carolina win and late in the conference season, it looked like they were going to start putting things together. And then South Carolina gets them back. And it just, it never materialized for them. They had the roster. And that's kind of why we say underperform. But yeah, they. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see this year because as we're going to get into, there are questions about one of those aforementioned players in terms of are we going to see him or not. But uh, but yeah, that's kind of where we left off last year. 100%. And again, Thompson and Samuel were number one in the country at the time, but for Monday and Harper to lose a breaker to decide that doubles point in the round of 16 at home, to have, again, Hud's up a set, Monday's up a set, Mitsui's up a set, and none of those guys get victories at home in the round of 16 after Diaz, Rodriguez do their jobs. Straight set wins at five and six. And I really, that was the most shocking part is by the end of the year, you felt really confident in Diaz at five. You felt really good, honestly, about Rodriguez at six. He was starting to play some serious ball, Chris. And again, it's just like once those things finally fell into place, it, they just couldn't get the top four to click at the same time. And so I do think that lowered the doubles point to click at the same time. And so I do think that loss kind of emblematic of, look, this team was really close. Again, three set losses there at two, at four, that they absolutely had chances to win that match. South Carolina was just able to gut it out, like just get over that finish line in what way Tennessee wasn't able to do last season. But look, I really like this roster coming into this year. And it starts at the top, and we've talked about this for just about every school we've previewed thus far. You've got to have those anchors at the top of your lineup to compete at the top of college tennis. And yes, again, departures. This team loses a lot. Harper's gone for sure. HUD's gone for sure. Kozlov's gone for sure. Prada's gone for sure. Rodriguez is gone for sure. So right there, that's five of nine players off of last season's roster. But who do you retain? Starts with Johannes Monday, who, after having some success on the pro circuit this past summer, you were curious, will the big man, the senior, come back for his final season? He likes to do exactly that. And he only played three matches. He won them all collegiately over the course of the fall, but he's ranked in the top 30, even via those three wins. And again, after a 16-3 and year at the top spot last season, I think the big lefty has earned the benefit of the doubt as a guy who... If he elevates to the guy status, Chris, like, why can't he be the best player in the SEC? And, you know, again, I think that's the other key point as well, to have a Monday coming back, to have a Mitsui coming back, who, again, got better and better as the year progressed, continues to have good pro results when not competing in collegiate events to bring back a Diaz for his final season. He has just been so consistent over the course of his first two years. It's a strong nucleus to build around for this Tennessee roster here this season. 
I'm I'm a little surprised you say why can't he be the best player in the SEC? If it's not him, he has to be the incumbent. Who is? I mean, you're going to get a strong argument. Samuel, obviously, huh? Samuel. Yeah, I was going to say you're going to get a strong argument from Toby Samuel. Yeah, uh, no doubt. But beyond that, you're looking at the top teams. You know, the top player, obviously, Ethan Quinn from Georgia, gone. Your yeah. top guy at you know at at the other contending schools, Kentucky, Liam Draxel, gone. Mississippi State, Jovanovich, still not. I mean, yet to be proven. He's going to have not not that level until he proves it. I mean, to me. Monday is the incumbent in that position, and he's really only got Toby Samuel to compete with. So he is, in my mind, that top player uh, in the SEC uh, with with obvious competition from hopefully a healthy Toby Samuel. Yeah. Uh, and let's just say, again, in a wide open SEC where – Again, the team with the most continuity at the top, and you talked about those teams that competed there last year, Tennessee, South Carolina, Kentucky, Georgia, the team of that group, with uh, you know, none of those teams have that much continuity. It's a team that was a tier maybe below them or half a tier below them last year, Mississippi State, to your point, that actually has the most continuity or most uh, highest retention rate from last year's singles lineup, and yet do they have that upper echelon guy? That's a question we will see answered, though. Yovanovich certainly had a really good fall. But again, as a building block in a wide-open SEC, let me start by just having the best guy. Like, maybe even the best two if we get the best version of Shinsuke Mitsui from start to finish in a season. Because, again, Shinsuke Mitsui's been really good at the four spot these last two years, no doubt, for Tennessee. But you look at the pro results. He's been a top 700 guy. I think he went 16-10 and 10 in his pro matches this year. Can he be that guy at number two? this season for Tennessee, because even with the new pieces they bring in, and we'll talk about them in a second, he is the guy who is the most natural fit for that spot. And look, he's never going to have the most size, but Shinsuke Mitsui will never be less athletic than his opponent on the other side of the net. His speed, his feel, his ability to take the racket out of your hand with how he uses that speed to move forward to the net. And again, how well he volleys, he has the game to be a number two singles player, Chris. I will always beat the drum of, I remember the first time I watched Shinsuke Mitsui play as a freshman at the Knoxville Classic. I called Chris and I was like, dude, you got to see this Tennessee freshman. He's a junior. Like, it's just time for him to be the number two player. And I do wonder, I know that we're going to get to the MVP discussion in a little bit, Chris, but like, the if he is the best version of himself, why couldn't he be the second best player in the SEC? Why couldn't Tennessee go out there against even the Floridas, the Mississippi States, all these other competitors, Kentuckys, and say, no, we think we should go up 2-0 on you with our top two? Oh, I, I think it's a valid question. If you get the best version of him, look, the the question you're always going to ask yourself, obviously, the size is not not huge. And, you know, the weapons aren't monstrous. He's a... but. My gosh, does he defend unbelievable and turns that defense into offense in in a hurry? But anybody that can go into uh you know into a few a twenty five k futures like he did in Columbus and knocks off Anthrop in the first round, Alta Morano in the second round, Taha Body in the third round before going down in three sets to Jake Fernley. Clearly, the guy can play and he can play at that at that level. That's always been the question: is 
sure he's a he can be a great four, probably a really good three. Can he go at two? We're going to find out this year. I'm, I have no doubts because I'm sure that's where he's going to be behind Johannes Monday. And that's the big question. Can he play at that two spot with some of the guys that are probably going to be big hitters? Uh, and can they knock him off the court? Or his, is his defense turning into offense just too good for them? It's a fascinating question. I want to thank the Tennessee SID, Tennessee Athletic Department. Their stats are better than anyone else's. Mitsui 5-0 and this fall. All straight set wins. Win over Bowden, Stewart, Lagayev, Vasa, and Latinovich. His career record against top 10 opponents, 0-2. His career record against top 25 opponents, 0-3. His career record against top 50 opponents, 5-4. and which doesn't make sense because if he has – no, that does make sense. Um, apologies. Bad math by me. He's going to play more than nine top 50 players this year if he's playing number two in the lineup. We're going to see that record tested. And again, I have always been a believer in his game, but I do think he is a pivotal inflection point player because he's got to settle into that number two role and that would open everything up for these new pieces plus Diaz to work in. And let's talk about the fifth year quickly. Angel Diaz, who again, last season was a rock for Tennessee at the bottom of their lineup, particularly to end this season. You look, he won one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of his last, th- he went eight, one, and three in his last 12 matches uh, in terms of decisions, 13 and two overall at the number five spot, 21 and three leading the team in dual match victories. Here's the thing. Watching Diaz play, he belongs at five or six. Like, I do think this year you could give him the boost to four, but he doesn't have the biggest weapons. He doesn't have the biggest serve. He makes you work. And again, you're not going to see a vulnerability in Diaz's game. I love Diaz's game. Like, talk about gritty. Like, talk about a guy who if you put him at four or five, like if that's where he is in your lineup, you're not worried about him losing a match for you at that spot, right? You're not worried like, okay, that's the court that there's going to be a quick blowout against Angel Diaz. That's not who he is. You're never going to blow him out. I do worry some players at three, though, might have the weapons to overwhelm him. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think you're under. I think you're underselling him, but I think it's going to be a little stretch for him to get, you know, a little bit out of his comfort zone, maybe. But look, dude's got a big forehand. He can slap with the best of them. I, I think he's got some weapons there. I, I'll say not to the level of, say, a Liam Draxel, but a very similar <clears throat> argument, excuse me, that I've made in the past about Liam Draxel. In man, not a ton of weapons, but he's a guy that sneakily actually has the weapons just chooses not to use them most of the time. But when he needs them, he can call upon them. Diaz can hit. He just doesn't do it probably enough. And I think yeah. it'll be, a, it's going to be a good question because to your point, I think we're probably going to have to see him filling in at that three spot. And if he's filling in at that three spot, he can't play his five, six game where he grinds all day long. He's going to have to go for his shots when he gets that three quarter ball. He's going to have to pounce on it and force the issue. He can't just play play rallies and expect that the other guy's going to eventually miss. Yeah, of those returners, Monday, 20 in the rankings, Mitsui, 33. Those are the only balls ranked right now. Uh, Mitsui, one of the freshmen 
they're 34 in the country. You also have Monday and Diaz, 26 in the country in doubles. And yeah, that is actually a really interesting point to uh, note to point out if you've watched enough Diaz. He does have the weapons in him. And again, it speaks he's a really fluid athlete. And it's tough to overwhelm him with anything because he's able to recover, react, absorb, redirect so well. But you're right, he can produce some pace. He has been working to move forward. The question is, Chris, did that those weapons look so good at five because he was able to overwhelm opponents with everything else as well? And will he be able to sustain that when, again, the ball's coming at him a little bit quicker? We're believers in his game. And I do think, again, he is the third returner in terms of most experience, and he will be in the singles lineup. There's no doubt about that. But then you start to look at the new additions and the falls they had or the pedigree they have. And that is where, Chris, this Tennessee team becomes fascinating. And even before we get into the freshmen and perhaps some news that others will be less familiar with if they haven't been attuned to the storylines or the roster configurations on websites day in, day out when we talk about those freshmen. But I think if your Tennessee coaches, Chris Woodruff, uh, James McKay. By the way, they're going to miss Ian Van Cott, who is a big part of the energy and just the tone set for this Tennessee team over the last couple of years, headed off now to Columbia, where he's the assistant. But they do bring in a veteran presence in Jonas Lalami, coming over from Old Dominion, was primarily at the number one spot last season. If he, like, I think I would be shocked because we'll talk about this Tennessee schedule, it's loaded. I'd be shocked in the month of January if Lalami doesn't start out at three and we see Diaz at four. Like, I think not only can you get away with it, I know his UTR might be a little bit lower, but like, it, it will be fascinating to see where Lalami places because he is the next most experienced player in terms of match play in college in the roster. Yeah, very, very, very possible. I've actually seen a fair amount of Lalami at ODU catching, you know, a, a number of Liberty tournaments, the regionals <laughs> out there, et cetera. Uh, look, first of all, in losing Van Cott, that means that the Tennessee coaching staff's only two thirds as crazy as they used to be. Uh, <laughs> in and, the best I, way, the sort yeah, of crazy you love in college. Exactly. Tennis. And I yeah. say that as a lead in to the fact that Lalami feeds right into that same yeah. genre. He is he he is one of those guys that's, you know, a very, very emotional guy on the court. And he's going, it's either going to gel really well with those coaches or because they're all the same, it's going to be an absolute disaster. Uh, we'll see. But, but just to that point, and I apologize for cutting you off, they need that. Like, that's not Monday. And Mitsui, no, like, Monday is calm, cool, collected, in a way, Walton was that tone center at the top. But, you know, again, they don't have that Harper. They don't have that guy on the bench right now who's going to get the people going. You know, Mitsui's going to Mitsui it up. But I do think playing the number two spot, you just don't have opportunities to Mitsui it up as much as he maybe did at four. They need that dose of adrenaline. And if that's going to come from Lolami, I think that's a great tone for the freshmen to see. I think that's something for these guys to rally around. Absolutely. And he will be the guy throwing all kinds of energy around the court. He's going to be very emotional. And look, I think he is the he's the sleeper in this roster. He's played at Old Dominion. Look, his brother is the associate head coach there. He's playing in the shadows of his brother. He's got he's playing the top spot at a mid-major where, you know, it's not the same sort of environment as now moving into a power five at Tennessee in the SEC, where I think 
you know, obviously with everything being a very mental game, it's a different mental edge when, okay, I'm the number one at ODU. And now all of a sudden I'm playing, let's say three or four at Tennessee. And I can really make a difference in this squad where, you know, nothing against ODU is a great program. Uh, and they've been, they've done very, very well. But when you're the top guy there and you're looking down and you're always looking down at what the rest of the team's doing, now you're going, man, these guys need me here. I mean, I got to contribute. I think it gives him the opportunity to be a big contributor. And it's going to be, I mean, he's the wild card to me in this team. And if if he can actually step it up and he, look, he's got game. This kid has some serious game. If he can step it up and be a solid three for them and allow them to play Angel at four, and we haven't even gotten into the fact of, and who knows, look, we have this open question about there's, he's not on the roster, but there's eligibility still for Blaze Bicknell. Who knows if that ever happens? I, it Things could go really, really well for this program. Yeah. What I really like about this roster is I think they've got six guys for sure to fill out a singles lineup in a way where if you listen to our last USC episode, if you listen to Arizona, the questions we have about their number six, Columbia to some extent as well, although their guys have a little bit more experience that's more success related. Like I see, even without Bicknell, by the way, I see six players on this roster, like six guys that in whatever spot they're in, you don't feel bad about any of them in any of the spots. Maybe you have some questions about six and we'll get to that in a second. But like, again, if Lamy's playing three or four, particularly given some of the turnover we've seen on the SEC rosters this year, I think he's going to be okay early on. I think he's going to be fine in getting to the level, getting to the environment, getting into the energy of it all. And I think he'll thrive, whether it's three, whether it's four. Again, I want to see his level of tennis and his game style more before I report accurately where I think that should be. But that's four guys. And then, you know, looking at the fall, you look at a roster, uh, player on their roster who does have at least some experience. Chris Lee probably had the best fall of any player on this Tennessee roster. And again, a lot of guys were off playing pro events, but you look for Chris Lee, who I believe goes 13-2 and two overall in the fall. Now, there weren't uh, 13 and three, excuse me. There weren't massive victories, but a lot of match counts, you know, again, rung up for him, Chris. A lot of wins under his belt, which is always a good thing for any player this portion of the year. Where are your Chris Lee thoughts? Is that someone we should expect to see in the lineup? Yeah, I mean, I honestly think that we're going to have just a huge, and it's not even, it's not like a two-way battle. There's a monster battle down low in this roster we've got you're you're talking about chris lee we've got of course we're talking tennessee there has to be an australian in the lineup they got a freshman coming in james newton from australia uh that you know that's there that's going to be in that battle you got apple tower that's going to be in that battle you got another freshman pajanka that's going to be in that battle there are a bunch of guys all competing for those spots even nicholas cobalt uh, I mean, it's a it's a lot of competition down low, and someone. The, I mean, the good news there, y- you look at the roster and you go, ah, there's nothing. I don't see any standouts. It doesn't make me feel great, but at the same time, there are so many guys that are at that same sort of level that if anybody can step it up and ha- and have a good go at it, they've got plenty of fill. I do think we're going to see some Chris Lee contributions this year, no doubt. 
Yeah, and again, he's the last returner with experience, but you talked about the freshman class uh, that this Tennessee team brought in. And, you know, again, it, it is worth saying here at the top, in case you haven't been following closely, top 10 newcomer in the ITA newcomer rankings, a guy we were really excited to see play college tennis. He's a former number 13 ITF junior in the world, a guy who's cracked the top 600 of the ATP rankings. Olaf Pajczowski, uh, Pajczowski, I apologize if I have butchered the pronunciation. He's no longer coming to school. Uh, his pro ranking as of right now, 547 in the world. Thus, he feels comfortable making the decision to turn pro. I will say I was really high on this Tennessee roster with his inclusion because I'll tell you what, you add him to the list here with Lalami. You know, let's say that's the guy's playing three. Now Lalami Diaz is a 4-5 question, and then these next three freshmen we're going to talk about, just one of them has to click with Chris Lee to play six. That is a real, real lineup. And so certainly his absence will be felt when you look at the ceiling of this team, something we'll discuss here in a moment. But I still like the freshmen. And if I were to power rank the order of strength of resume. It probably starts with Pajatsonka, uh, who you mentioned, the 19-year-old from Poland. He's a former career high, number 39 junior in the world. Now, again, we saw all these freshmen play very, very limited in the fall. So I don't know if you're going to be able to read into any of his results. He played, what, uh, six matches, three and three, beat Horvat, Parquet, Penslin, three set losses to Strom, Sharma of San Diego, and then a straight set loss to Tachi. So, okay, that's a little bit of action. But a 6'5 freshman, I think he is a fascinating piece. Next, in terms of, again, pedigree, you probably go to ITF Junior number 106, the 19-year-old Nicholas Kobelt from Switzerland, who, again, we saw very, very limited action out of in the fall. You want to know the Kobelt results. I do have them for you here. Uh, Kobelt, over the course of the fall, did not play any matches. 5'10 freshman, yet to see him make his debut. And then James Newton, the least heralded, never cracked the top 1,000 of the junior rankings. No pro results for me to look to, but extends the streak to Chris's point of having an Australian in the roster. Two top 100 ITF juniors. Like, I, I mean, again, they're going to need them to play right away, particularly with no more Piachowski, but that's a good foundation to start on. Yeah, and I think what you if you simply go and pull up, say, the UTR roster for Tennessee, you're going to look at it and you're going to go, eh, the guy that these that that Tennessee's probably going to be, you know, most high on is Philip Pajanka. Pajanka is a guy that has a he's a like a career high thirteen seven or so UTR took had some had some issues there had to take some time off. If you can produce which he's done here this fall. He went three sets with, you know, Marius Copil. He beat Torres, a 14-plus UTR guy, uh, in a in a 25K Futures tournament. He has upside. Yes, since then, he's had some bad losses, what I would call bad losses, to guys that are, you know, sub-13 UTRs. So he's maybe a little bit all over the board. But definitely the upside is there. He's had he's had that ranking in the past. That's the guy they're most high on from an incoming freshman perspective. And I think that's the guy they're counting on right behind Diaz, uh, you know, t- is is going to have to be Pajanka. Yeah, and I forgot to mention Apple Tower. I don't know what happened to my tab there, but Apple Tower, former top 100 junior number 86. So again, Apple Tower. Cobalt, Pajanka, three guys who have been right at or around top 100 juniors in the world. 
you need two of them to click, at least, probably. Certainly one if you you know if you want to hold the spot for Chris Lee. Maybe he does fill in at six. If you've seen that his game, that feels like a role where he could thrive in. But again, man, you add Pychowski to that list. Now you've got a really, really special freshman class. Even without him, you mentioned it, Pytsonka, 6'5", Appletower, Koba. Like, these are real options to play right away for Tennessee. And the thing I do like with Monday, Mitsui, Diaz, Lalami, I think these guys are going to be able to find their footing at 5, 6, early in the year. And if they're playing any higher than that, it's indicative that they've got a level that is worth playing them at that spot, that they are going to be real contributors right away, right? Because they don't have to be given where this lineup and roster is. Yeah, and I think, like like I said, for those that want to go out and just pull up UTRs and look at it, Pajanka Lalami, both highly underrated on UTRs. This is a better team than you think. And, you know, who knows what surprises might lay ahead for us during the season. Yeah, exactly. There's always that Blaze Bicknell wild card on the horizon as he does have another year of eligibility remaining. The question is, will he choose to explore it or not? But he is still eligible to return for this Tennessee team. And again, he comes back for Tennessee. Now again, you add uh, him with Monday, Mitsui, Lalami, Diaz, five guys who have played a lot of college tennis matches. Now you're only asking maybe one, two of the freshmen to play if they're really good. That's a real Tennessee team that, by the way, was ranked as high in our preseason poll uh, as, let's see, as number five by a couple of voters. They were ranked as low as number 13 uh, by a voter as well. So in case you were curious about the highs and lows for this Tennessee roster from RN. Now, I am curious, Chris, I offered you my thoughts earlier on why I think Mitsui needs to be really good at that number two spot for everything else to fall in the place lower in the lineup. Who's your MVP as you start to project this lineup out? Yeah, I tend to look at these things, not necessarily the at, at the MVP, but from, I don't know, what I'll call it's not even the most critical point, but it's sort of the point. The swing point. The inflection yeah, the, the, point. The, yeah, the point that if things go well here, they're really good, right? And for me, that's the four spot because I think we've got the top three and we're just going, well, you know, if, if those top three are, are indeed Monday Mitsui Diaz and then we have the, you know, the monster, you know, however many way battle for who's playing four, five, six, they're all looking, uh, you know, I still think Pajanka might have an, have an edge there, but they're sort of looking at about all the same level. And so if they're all about the same level, five, six, obviously will fare better at five, six, four becomes that, wow, if they get something out of four, then five, six are obviously going to be doing really well. And that's going to bode really well for them. So I think if they turn in a really good record at the four spot, things are going very, very well for this team. It's a very good argument to make, and I complete it resonates. Just to reiterate my point on why Mitsui to me is that MVP is because he's got to be the crutch early in the season as they're trying to work out doubles pairings, who fits where in those three through six spots. And this team has a real schedule right away to be tested to where, you know, again, they're Michigan. January 18th in Knoxville, Wake Forest, January 21st in Knoxville, Oklahoma or Washington uh, is who they would play the winner of after they play South Florida. If they win that match, kickoff weekend, which they're hosting, but 
We saw that Oklahoma match last year. That was a really, really good kickoff weekend. I expect another good one between those two teams in the final in Knoxville this year. A hundred percent, because I'll tell you what, that Oklahoma team, Martina, they bring back pretty much everyone except for Cephos Monsi, and they've replaced him with Colo Monsi, his younger brother, who's one of the top freshman recruits in the country. So again, like that's a real kickoff weekend test. They've got Michigan. Wake Forest, and I'm going to say probably Oklahoma right away in the first month of play. Then February, let's say they do get to the national indoors. Even beyond that, they've got TCU, they've got Columbia on the schedule. Then, of course, March, April, they're going to get into SEC play. Here's the thing, though. Again, those first two months, Michigan, Wake Forest, Oklahoma, TCU, Columbia, and potentially three national indoors matches. They want to be a top eight seed. Four and four is probably the record. And I just don't see how they go four and four in those matches without Mitsui going seven and one or six and two or something really, really strong to set the tone like he and Monday early in the season. Hey, we're as good as any top two in the country. And I think they're going to need them to do that to have success in those early matches. And so that's that would be my final case for Mitsui. But Chris, again, pathway to a top eight seed in what is a wide open SEC They've got enough supplemental matches to certainly get the job done. I mean, again, that's you already mentioned the kickoff stuff. Even if they don't get out of kickoff, they've got a pretty healthy schedule to build up points. Oh, plenty of opportunity. We've yeah. talked about this before, right? The you know losses to top teams barely hurt you. Wins are humongous. So you schedule, if you have any shot, which they do, of beating those top teams, you schedule those teams and all of those matches they've got in the non-conference schedule, especially if they make the indoors. Uh, yeah, there's so much opportunity there for them that they could. E- I mean, they could they could easily walk into a top eight seed with with an SEC schedule plus everything they've got non-conference. Even if, to your point, they just split those matches. Wow, four wins out of eight in those matches. While that's that will be tremendous. Martinez, Mandlick, Han. I mean, come on, the nicest guy in college tennis, Nathan Han. I will never. No, by the way, Martinez and Mandlick, great guys. That's a real team. Like, right. I mean, again, we're going to know how good this Tennessee team is in the month of January. That is a real, like, they'll play a Wake Forest team that may or may not have Boy Tom. Yeah, you still got Hassan back there at Oklahoma as well, right? So, yeah, yeah, Jordan Hassan's coming back too. It's a real team. Yeah, it's it's not going to be an easy battle for sure. Obviously, indoors, you got to, you got to like, you got to like Monday Mitsui. Indoors in Knoxville too. And And I have no idea, you know, how much indoor tennis Monty has played. Uh, you got to favor Monday and Mitsui both indoors at Knoxville. But Oklahoma, man, that's a that is a tough, tough roster. And it'll it'll be a good test for sure. Team that probably should have gotten more top ten consideration than we gave them, Chris. They were pretty casual. I don't think they were on anyone's top fifteen ballot. If you go and look at the Excel sheet now, they're in my honorable mentions category because I went like twenty seven teams deep. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make as it relates to Tennessee is there are plenty of opportunities for us to know how good this team is. And by the way, what is their first match of conference play? March 1st, Friday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. Georgia's coming to Knoxville. So, again, it's a different Georgia roster, but they're going to get their shot at Georgia. They're going to get a shot. Florida is a home match for them this season. They have South Carolina, home match for them this season. Now, the big road matches, they're at Kentucky. Uh, they're at Texas A&M as well. 
do we throw at Vanderbilt after their, uh, their incoming freshman just won the Orange Bowl? Like, should they yeah, be on the list as well? That, I mean, I, one guy's not going to make it, but that is a very, very interesting note for the SEC. Yeah, Orange Bowl, Orange Bowl winner heading to Vandy this year. Yeah, Scott, Scotty Brown doing his thing already uh, for the Commodores. Look, I mean, again, we, we've talked about the ceiling. We, uh, we've talked about the schedule. We've talked about the roster. Let's talk ceiling floor. Chris, what do you view as the outcomes for this team? Because, again, what's so fascinating is I know exactly who Monday is. I don't know who Mitsui is at number two, but I know a lot. You know him as a commodity. You know Diaz as a commodity. And then you just – you know Lalami as a commodity. And then you just have this complete other side of the roster. It's these two, again, it's, it's not a hot pot. It's a melting pot, as you alluded to earlier, of all these different things on this team this year. What's the vacillations? What are the ceiling floor? What do you see? Yeah, the, I mean, the ceiling, much like every other team we've talked about, I don't see them crack. The, they're way too inexperienced at the bottom of the lineup to beat those top four, to knock the top four out. I think five is sort of a ceiling if all, if all's going well for them from a ranking perspective, say heading into NCAAs, could, could they pull off an upset, uh, especially if they get a guy like Blaze Bicknell back and getting into the NCAA tournament, could they make a semis? Absolutely. That could happen. But from a ranking perspective, I'd say heading into there, five is pretty much the ceiling the floor is an interesting conversation here. As long as they've got Monday and Mitsui, I think the floor is like, you know, 16. Yeah. If either one of those two guys goes down, man, things get really ugly really fast here. Uh, and it, Unless Bicknell comes back. Yeah, I, but like imagine this team with no Monday. Yeah. I, it's it That is, I mean... Sure, you take the number one away from any team and it does damage, but I think even more so here because they're already counting at four through six on effectively, a, you know, a group of new guys to be contributing and you take the leader out. Sure, he might still be there on the sideline, but if he's not able to play, and there have been some issues in the past injury-wise for, for Johannes, that would be devastating and it could take them down. But their floor realistically is should be a 16 Injury-based wise, we're still talking like a top 20 team. It's fascinating to me because if you make the triangle of traits you'd like, top-end talent, in terms of, by the way, the SEC race in particular, which is the most fascinating race we have in all of college tennis this year because there is so much turnover at the top of these college tennis rosters. Do they have the best one-two in the conference? Samuel and Thompson would say, go look at the round of 16. We're the best one, too, and someone has to take that from us. I think that's a fair assessment to say, but certainly Monday Mitsui in that conversation. Still not the unequivocal best of the best there. Are they the most experienced team? Well, compared to Kentucky, maybe, compared to Georgia, maybe, but you've got this Mississippi State roster where, like, what is it, five of the six guys are returners from last season, so not the most experienced. Are they the deepest in the SEC? Well, these freshmen are pretty good, but honest to God, I think the deepest team, and I've said this all offseason long, in the SEC is Kentucky. Like, I'm telling you, Kentucky's freshmen are really good. They are eight players deep when you start including uh, Kosne and Weeks, who obviously got a lot of reps last year as well. Loud it beat Emil Hud today. 
That's this is what I'm saying. And so again, <laughs> like I don't think they have the the clear cut strongest top two. I don't think they're the most experienced SEC team. I don't think they're the deepest SEC team. I do think if you're making the Venn diagram, they are the team that best fits the overlap of those three circles better than any other SEC team right now we have of top-end experience, talent in the depth of the roster moving downwards, and then uh, experience just more broadly of Lalami, Diaz, Mitsui, Monday, guys who have all played north of 50 dual matches in their careers. Again, the SEC is going to hoard because they probably do have seven top 25 teams. I don't know that the SEC has a clear-cut top eight team entering the season. Obviously, we have Tennessee here at seven. But, like, what if the, the SEC has a really bad national indoors? Like, what if they don't get the wins they need up top? Like, I'm just fascinated to see what the rankings race, how it will help, you know, again, that that clutter at the top always helps the SEC. How much will it help the SEC this season? And can Tennessee position itself to take advantage of the fact that the SEC always gets a boost in the rankings formula? Like, if this team wins the SEC regular season or wins the SEC tournament, they'll be a top eight seed. And if that's the case, their ceiling is make the final site. Like, they, and by the way, they've been there two of the last three years. Like, that's the standard they hold for themselves. You should when you've got a senior like Johannes Monday on the roster. Floor, I don't think, can be lower than top 16 because it's still the SEC. And I think the SEC winner might have two losses, but a two-loss SEC team is still unequivocally top 16. So I think top 16 is the number. Chris, you're our rankings guru. Final thoughts on number seven, Tennessee, goes to you. Yeah, when you talk rankings from the SEC, you're right. There is no clear-cut top eight team from the SEC. That being said, five of the six, five of the of the hosts, if you will, for the national indoor. And I take it there's only fifteen. I was about to said sixteen, but uh, with Columbia hosting, they're an automatic. There are fifteen hosts for kickoff weekend. Five of them are SEC teams. Yeah, that's right? crazy. I mean, yeah, so look, and and you would look at a team like Georgia, really, really down roster-wise from last year, but Georgia's kickoff weekend, Georgia, Texas A&M, Auburn, Louisiana. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, Louisiana's not winning. Yeah. There's an SEC team coming out of there. Whether it's Georgia or not, there's an SEC mm-hmm. team coming out of there going to indoors. South Carolina is going to win their their section. They're going to indoors. Kentucky, they're going to win their section. They're going to indoors. Mississippi State's got a tough region. That's one where you go, ah, maybe somebody doesn't make it there. Tennessee, they should win their section. There's going to be probably, uh, I would say- No less than three. No less than three. No less than three, probably four or more SEC teams- at the indoors, which just means there's more opportunities for points. All of those points feed points later in the season when they play each other in conference play. Yeah, it, there may not be a clear-cut top eight team, but there are going to be plenty of opportunities to go around. And whoever emerges as that team in the SEC, if someone can, unless they just completely beat each other up all year, if someone can emerge, they're going to be a top eight. I just don't know who the heck it is. This is not criticism of the ITA. This is just clear cut. We need to move the kickoff draft 
to later in the year. Because Wake Forest, UNC, Florida, Illinois is a crime against humanity. That those four teams aren't spread out. The fact that, again, when you were drafting in May, it, it was just like, oh, man, or June. It was like, oh, Quinn might be coming back. Mickelson's going there for sure. Boosie's going there for sure. Like, that Georgia team is going to be loaded. It's like, what do we know now? In this, like, it's just, I wish we could do it later. I know logistically-wise, all the planning, the earlier the better. But, man, like looking at some of these regions, I just feel wrong. Like it just feels like if these teams could draft again, I don't think it would play out exactly the same way. And I wonder if 17 Utah, if they got to draft again, if they'd be like, you know, we're still going to go to Texas because we just feel comfortable with this. We know we're not going to win, so yeah, we're look, still going to go look, to Texas. No, none of us understood that when they did yeah. it. I still don't understand it. Well, you know, one day we need to just get Coach Roland Bratt now on the, on the show one day and go, what the hell were you thinking? Well, I I texted him actually immediately afterwards and said, what the hell were you thinking? And, uh, you know, it was a very sound argument. Hey, we're going to teach our guys what it's like to play the best. We're losing some guys. Uh, you know, it's going to be a tough rebuilding year. But, yeah, what a what a match. It would have been funnier if he was like, you know how in a fantasy football draft, if you accidentally log off, it auto-drafts for you, who's ever at the top of the list? It was like, it freaking auto-draft. It was, it was devastating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, that's what happened. Um, anyways, Tennessee, we spent a lot of time talking not Tennessee here. The theme is the Vols should expect to compete for an SEC title once again. They should expect to compete for a final site once again. They should expect to go two and one at the national indoors once again and this is a fascinating team that's been on a really good three-year four-year five-year run and Chris Woodruff coach McKay they have this Tennessee program back where Tennessee men's tennis has traditionally sat in the course of its history with that said though that'll do it for our preview of number seven Tennessee Chris it's our first hour plus episode in our preview deciding point, our preseason deciding points. I blame it on Ikea. We're bad. (laughs) (laughs) No, Korean, I will say full circle here, Korean barbecue sat really well. Like it's five (laughs) hours later. So one would hope it would. And I should point out to all of our listeners. I made Chris, I said, first I texted Chris, I go nine 30 start. He goes, he goes, let the record show. He goes, Hey, can we do a little bit later than that? Like just cause, you were doing, you know, again, I'm a vegan. It takes me six hours. First, I have to grow the nuts. Then I have to peel the nuts. Then I have to chuck the nuts. Then I have And to then I got to get on the bike. And, yeah, yeah. And then we can finally pod. And then I have to cook and all the things. Um, and then I texted him and go, hey, I need a little longer. I got to hop on the bike myself. Like, I got to work off some things. And honestly, I felt great. This was a wonderful show, Chris. I hope Tennessee fans... We talked enough Tennessee, right? Like, I feel like we brought – we talked all of their freshmen. You yeah. gave me a James Newton take. Yeah, uh, plenty of tangents, plenty of Tennessee talk. Look, there are the, – those guys, they're always on, on our favorites list because we love we love the guy. We love the coaching staff there. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And the James Newton take, of course, always. I, I would – we need to go back and count. How many years running has there been an Australian on the Tennessee roster? No, it's it's on the James. Ugh, Chris, you ask these questions right as I X out of my tabs, like literally <laughs> right as I do it. And that's really upsetting that you said that because I know it says specifically on James Newton's roster spot, which I will click on here at the moment. And I can tell you, James Newton. I, OK, you know what? We're going to leave this joke in because I want you to know, is this a positive or a negative about your tennis? 
if this stat is on your resume because they're filling out the prep, the personal form. Holy cow. And I it says, love. by joining the Vols, extends Tennessee's streak of having an Australian on its roster to 37 straight years dating to the 87-88 uh, season. That's an awesome streak, by the way. But here's what I'm saying. That it doesn't say, like, junior Roland Garros semifinalist, that it says <laughs> extends the Vols streak to 37 straight years. I'd be like, yo – Put that in the last line. That's like the, you know, in the resume when they say the fun facts or whatever that bottom section is. I haven't had to do a resume in a little bit, Chris. Um, But that's like the fun fact section. That's not like a top line prepper personal. I'd be like, no, 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 no. Go tennis first, then the 37 straight seasons I never would have guessed 30. I mean, I would have thought 15. 37, that's ridiculous. Do you know who that first Australian was? No, I have no idea. Pat Harper's first season was actually seven eighty eight. I thought you, I thought you were at least going to tell me like JP Smith. But. No, that would have been good. No, because Har- look, I'm going to miss Pat Harper. That's my guy. Like I just again, I'm spending time with him. I love. You're right. There's there's a dry wit to the Aussies that. I think exists in Judaism as well. And so we have always coexisted well as a people. I don't know if that's true historically, but in my experience, that's what I'm going to say. Um, and I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss having Harper around. Like he, that's my guy. Um, and so one last joke at his expense. Anyways, that's probably enough Tennessee, Chris. That's probably where we no, have to No hit. double bounce jokes. <laughs> uh, <God. laughs> Too soon. <laughs> Um, is that again? That's not a thirty for thirty. That's like a four for four. Maybe that'll be our first investigation in the new studio. Chris, is what happened on Match Point in the twenty twenty one doubles final? That would be uh, what happens on uh, you know again. What happens in Orlando stays in Orlando. Anyways. That'll do it. I'm wrapping it here, Chris. That's episode seven. That's the Tennessee Vols. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westa, for the f*** of an energy job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, Chris Hanley Horace, any final thoughts? You ready to wrap this bad boy? I'm ready to wrap. All right, let's do it. For the fantastic Chris Hallioris, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. Chris, what do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. And we will see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.